What's your image of Jesus? Do you have a mental image of Jesus if you're thinking of him? There's, a, there's various images that people have out there of what Jesus looks like. Um, and um, most of them are pretty terrible. <laughs> so I don't know what yours is, but my goal this morning is that by the end of this morning, you will have a better image of Jesus than one of those up there. Jesus' love for us can often be a very abstract concept. We, we know that he gave his life for us over 2,000 years ago. We know he secured a place for us in the future in heaven. Um, and when we praise him, we usually focus on what he's done for us, which is good. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but we don't often think about who, who he is now and what he's like now. And he's done the things that he did for us because of the reality of his love for us. So I want to focus this morning a little bit on why Jesus is the altogether lovely one, why he is amazing and lovely, and why we love him because of who he is and not just because of what he's done for us. He is just such an amazing, fascinating person that I want to spend eternity with him. So I want to read some verses that we looked at in Colossians to start with and just speak about them briefly and then talk about some other passages of Scripture. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we get the song of the firstborn begins, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Um, So imagine you're sitting next to Jesus. Imagine you've got some time just one-on-one with Jesus, and you can just have a conversation with him, and and you say to him, um, so Jesus, you understand everything, right? Everything around us, all of creation, because you made it? He says, yeah. Like the complexity of the human brain, the most extraordinary. You understand it? Oh, yeah, that's nothing. What about high energy physics and where the dark matter exists? And you understand that completely? Oh, yeah, I designed it. I came up with all of that stuff. Like here's the person that all of this is nothing. All of these mysteries to science that have troubled the human race since its beginning, are just an open book to him. Because he des- he made it. He designed it. But, but what about beauty and art? But he came up with a concept of art and beauty. He understands why things are beautiful. What is beauty? He can actually answer that question. What is beauty? Um, and yet, when he looks at me, he can understand me completely. Like everything that I ever do. He knows why. Even if I don't know why myself, he knows why I do it. He knows everything that's happened to me. Right from the very beginning. Even things I've forgotten. He knows every moment that's impinged on me. He knows every atom of my body. The number of hairs on my head. He knows everything about me. Every tiny thing. Here's the man who created all things and understands all things. And then we read on about the future. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. So you say to him, 
you've got the plans for the future of this world in your head. Like everything that's ever going to happen, you know. Yeah, he does. All of the terrible things that we see around us, you're somehow going to turn those for good. Yeah, yeah. You've got the answers to all injustice and pain. Everything that was he wrong, you have the answer to. Yeah, he does. There's no problem that's too big for him. In earth or in heaven, there's no problem. We read the news, we say, that's terrible. That is awful, what is happening? But there's no problem that's too big for him. He has all of the answers in his hand. He has all of the future. It says, um, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. He has got plans to bring everything together that has ever gone wrong. Yeah, just imagine you're meeting somebody like this, somebody who is so extraordinary in their greatness, and yet this person who's sitting next to you that you're talking to loves you with a passion. They're not just so amazing, but they love you. They love you so much that they're willing to give, uh, to sacrifice themselves for you because they care such much about you. And uh, another description later in Colossians, I pray that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the full riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you have this man in whom everything is hidden, everything is contained within him, that is the mystery or the, the power or the future and yet, when he was here on earth, he would hang out with ordinary people and seemed to be cap- they seemed to be captivated by him. You think of the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well. She started talking to him, and he spends time just sitting with this woman. Who is she? She's nothing. She's nobody. And yet he, the king of glory, comes and sits and gives her time because he cares about her. And by the end of the conversation, she's captivated. Um, do do you know anybody? Uh, you probably don't. But do you know anybody who's a tiny bit boring? Do do you know anybody like that? You know, just a tiny bit boring, and maybe you don't find their conversation that interesting, that scintillating. You know anyone like that? Well, just imagine what it must be for Jesus talking to us. <laughs> um, so, what do you think it was like for Jesus to talk to these people? But you know what? He, we don't read that he was bored. He wasn't bored. He would actually talk to people who were so far beneath him that you can't even measure the distance, and yet he would spend time with them. Have you ever met somebody really famous? I've never have. I've never. Like, I I know I'm from England, but I've never met royalty. I've never met anybody that's really remotely famous. But can you imagine you meet with, you see somebody who's really famous, and they may be like, I don't know, the, the Queen of England, and comes up to you and she says, hey, I'd like to hang out with you. Can we, can we spend some time talking? Can you imagine that? I had a, a dream once that, um, a couple of years ago that I was in the coffee shop and I was just having some coffee and doing some stuff and President Obama walked in with all his retinue and he walked in, he got halfway across and he turned and looked to me. He said, Hey, Andrew, I've been hoping to bump into you. <laughs> and he came over and sat down at the chair and like all the security guards around. And he starts talking. We've talked for like 20 minutes. And he's got all these questions about stuff that I do. 
And then somebody comes and whispers into his ear and he says, oh, I've got a flight to catch. I'm really sorry. I have to go. <laughs> and he goes, and I had this dream where it didn't actually happen. But can you imagine that? Well, this is the kind of thing that happened with Jesus. That he's walking along and there's this, this guy called Zacchaeus who is a nasty piece of work. I mean, he steals from people for a living. He collaborates with the Romans to steal from his own people. But he's fascinated by this Jesus. So he climbs a tree because he's not very tall. He can't see over the head. He climbs a tree so he can see Jesus. And Jesus is walking along and he gets near to him and he says, Hey, you, come down. I'm coming to your home. I'm going to be eating with you today. Can you imagine that? Uh, who is the, why does Jesus do this? Because this is, this is who he is. He's amazing. He does this. And he would do it with you. He would do it with you. In fact, he is doing it with you spiritually. But he will, we, when we, when we're in glory, I don't think Jesus, like, I don't think he's limited by time. And I think you can have, you know, he can talk to everybody at the same time, but he's going to spend time with you, hanging out with you, just talking to you about the things that have happened and all about who you are. And he will spend time with you. Uh, one of the extraordinary things about Jesus when he was on earth was that he was an emotional person. He's reflecting God. And sometimes we think God doesn't have emotions, but Jesus had emotions. So when Lazarus is dead and all the people are so upset, we read that Jesus wept. He wept not because he knew that Lazarus, well, he didn't know that he was going to rise again. Of course he did. But he wept because he saw the pain in people and he empathized with the pain in the people around him. But <clears throat> the love that he had with the disciples that he was with was something that was very real. In fact, I think that to start with, it was hidden from him that Judas would betray him. And then, of course, it was revealed later who it would be who would betray him. Because I think that because when Jesus quoted one of the Psalms about, about Judas betraying him, and it was a Psalm about David, and David was betrayed by one of his closest friends, one of the men who was one of his close advisors, like his own brother. And then when Absalom came and tried to, to kill David, his own son tried to kill him. This man deserted David and went and joined the other side. And that was what David wrote a psalm about. And Jesus quotes from that psalm about somebody who I thought was somebody who loved me dearly and they betrayed me. And so Jesus understood betrayal from the heart, what it's like when somebody you think loves you turns away. Jesus had these emotions. And what was an extraordinary verse in um, Luke chapter 22. It says, when he's speaking to his disciples, he said to them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And this word desire there is the Greek word epithumeo. And epithumeo is the same word as for lust. Now, in English, that's got a negative connotation. Lust is something negative. But in, in the Greek, it just means a very, very strong desire, a very strong desire. And so it's almost like Jesus saying, with a lust, I have lusted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, except it's got not a negative connotation. It's like he's burning with desire. He loves him so much. He knows he's going to be dead soon. And then he's going to be in heaven. But he's so desired to spend this time with them because he's human and as well as God. And he has this passion. And so this is, this is Jesus. This apparently irreconcilable differences that he's the God of all glory. And yet, he spends time with people and gets involved with them and loves them and has passion, passionate connection with them. But more than that, um, people loved him back passionately. Do you remember there were two women 
two separate stories actually of women who put ointment on his feet and who washed his feet. And uh, there's one of them is in, in Luke 7 here. Standing behind him at his, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Have you ever wondered how, ma- how many tears it needs to wash somebody's feet? He's a lot. You'd have to be crying a lot to generate enough fluid to wash somebody's feet. Uh, and she's washing the not because she's sad, but because she's overwhelmed with joy at this person that she can be with. What's it about? Why is this? Well, because Jesus says she loved much because she's been forgiven much. And here's somebody who was, we don't, we're not told, but people have assumed that she was a prostitute or she was somebody who was at the bottom of society. And Jesus came and he loved her. And he treated her as a human being. And he treated her as a person. And because of this, she was just captivated by him. She loved him so much she was captivated. She gave him the most precious thing that she could have. Even Peter, you remember Peter denied Jesus, that horrible, horrible denial, and yet Jesus still loved him so deeply. And Peter was broken that Jesus should love him, even though he treated him like that. Mm. Um, so let's go back to imagine you're having a really significant conversation with Jesus and you know, you're really getting into the deep stuff and he's explained the mysteries of the universe to you. And then somebody brings a baby up for him to hold and you can go away. Look, we're discussing the mysteries of the universe and you've got this baby. Well, this actually happened. They brought little children up for Jesus and the disciples tried to shoo them away because these were not significant. Jesus said, no, let me take them. He took them into his arms and blessed them because, you know, he cares about everybody. He cares about the least significant ones who we would think of are important. So we have these two extremes in his character. We have the the person who he is in his glory and his power, and yet this person who is so gentle and lowly. But you know, he could also be very angry. Uh, we're in home group. We're going through the the Gospel of John, and we're watching sections from the Gospel of Gone movie. And in that, you see Jesus' anger portrayed. Say, for example, when he cleansed the temple, when they were they were. Um, d- changing money in the temple and and exploiting people and Jesus' anger. And you see this anger that he has and his anger against the Pharisees. And why is he so angry suddenly? It's because he hates the exploitation, the financial corruption, and he particularly hates the bad shepherds. He hates these men who are supposed to be looking after the sheep and they are actually either exploiting them or just using them. These are the Pharisees, the false shepherds. And he contrasts himself, I'm the true shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. The false shepherds come to plunder and to destroy. And that makes him so angry when he sees his sheep, these precious sheep, being treated in this kind of way. But then, even though he was angry with them, even his worst enemies, the people who put him to death, He prayed that they would be forgiven. He prayed, God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So this is this Jesus, and I'm trying to to captivate you with him by telling you some stories, and I imagine that it would be much easier if we were there, and if we'd lived with him, and we'd seen him, and we'd watched these things, we would fall in love with him. But the verses I've been looking at are written by Paul, and Paul never saw Jesus in the flesh. 
How could Paul have such a love for him? What does Paul say? He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we encounter death all day long. We're considered as a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul was totally consumed with love for Jesus. Everything that he did and everything he said is permeated with his love that fills his being. Uh, You may think of another verse in Philippians 1. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, why is to die gain? Because then I get more of Christ. He said, I get him either way. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he says, He's caught between the two. He says it's, it's the love of Christ that drives every action. In Second Corinthians 5, he says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we aim to please him. So how come Paul was so in love with Jesus? How come Paul was so captivated by him, so filled to his very being with a fascination and a desire and a love for Jesus Christ. How was that? Well, we know that Paul had many visions of Jesus. So in Acts 18, the Lord said to Paul with a vision at night, do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent because I'm with you. No one will assault you to harm you because I have many people in this city. And then Acts 23 The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Have courage, for just as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify me about me in Rome. Was it the visions that made Paul love him? If so, is it true we can only love him like that if we have the visions? What about us? How does this come to us? How do you and I experience and be filled with a love for Jesus? Now, visions of Jesus are not that commonplace in my experience. I myself haven't had any, but that doesn't mean to say they don't happen. Yesterday, I was watching a, a video, and I'll share it with you sometime, but it's a, a, a gang leader in Scotland, a brutal gang leader, a brutal, brutal a drug lord and gang leader um, who they called the Godfather in Glasgow. And uh he had an encounter with Jesus where he actually saw a vision of Jesus, bright vision of Jesus. And within an hour, his life was totally changed and he was preaching the gospel. The newspaper headlines, the newspaper published a headline, Godfather turns to Jesus. That was the newspaper. He was radical. He now travels, preaches, prays for people. He speaks in small groups. He speaks in stadiums. His life is passionately driven for Jesus. So Jesus does appear to people in visions today. And, but, but the visions that Paul had were really to encourage him in the trials and to, to keep him going and just to, to reinforce him amongst the difficulties. Um, I wouldn't say the visions were the main reason why Paul was so in love with Jesus. 
I would say it was a combination of two things. Partly it was a revelation of the Holy Spirit just speaking Jesus' love into his heart. But partly it was because his own story, Jesus had loved him so much. Like he'd actually experienced being totally against Jesus and Jesus forgiving that entirely and setting him on the right track and washing his sin away and moment by moment looking after him and answering his prayers and he walked with Jesus day by day and his as he walked with Jesus he learned about him and that was where the love was coming from that is something that we can take part in as well that as we live our life day by day and as we walk with Jesus, from that grows a love from him. <clears throat> um, there's a, as, I, as I think uh, about myself, and wh- why do I love Jesus? What is it about, about him that makes me love him? I would say that um, um, it's, it's partly because what I, I read about, what I've just been showing you the verses, I've been, as I prepared this, I've been thinking, well, what is it? It's these, it's these stories about him partly, these things about him. Like, he's just so wonderful. He's just such a contrast in he, who he is and yet how he cares for everybody. So partly it's what we read, but partly it's my life that he's so committed to me that he, I, I fail him so often yet he forgives me. Um, he loves me so much. And we read, we love him because he first loved us. And my experience of Jesus is that I experience his love on a regular basis, that I make mistakes, he loves me. I ask him, he speaks to me. It's a walk with him. And out of that walk comes my life. I live my life for him. He is the one who's worthy of everything. So this is why I have a, a life that um, that uh, I loves him so much. So, I want to tell you another story, a story of a man called John Newton. John Newton, you may have heard of him. He, he was a slave trader. He, at one, he, one point he actually was captain, the captain of the slave trading ship. And he would travel to Africa and he would buy slaves and it was a, a brutal, brutal thing he was involved with. But not only was he a slave trader, he was a man who was so, um, irreligious and hating God that he would come up with, um, with phrases, um, with language that was so disgusting in the way he swore that even the other sailors would be disgusted. Can you imagine that? Like, that's how badly he would swear <clears throat> and how disgusting he would be. He was violently opposed to God. <clears throat> he knew the gospel because his mother, who died when he was young, his mother had taught him about salvation. So one night, I believe it was in the Atlantic, there was a terrible storm and the ship was going to go down. The ship was sinking and he was sure it was going to go down. He realized he was going to be dying. He was going to be meeting with God. And he had a, um, he, he suddenly saw the truth and he saw that he was going to have to face God and he cried to God for forgiveness. And the storm subsided. And he was okay, and his life was spared, and he was transformed, he was changed. So when he came back to England, he left that life behind, became a pastor, and in his life as a pastor, he started writing hymns, and he wrote some of the best-known hymns today. You've probably heard Amazing Grace, which is one of the hymns that he wrote that came out of this experience. And I want to share with you one of my all-time favorite hymns that he wrote, especially the fourth verse, but um, we'll start with verse 1. 
How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Dear name, the rock on which I build my shield and hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless doors of grace. And then he ends with this verse, which is just who Jesus is to him. (coughs) He says, Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, except the praise I bring. This is my Jesus. This is who he is. He's everything to me. And I love him because of who he is. I love him because of what he does. But I love him because of who he is. So John Newton was um, not the only one to receive forgiveness. All of us, whether we've sinned like he did or not in the same kind of way, all of us have experienced, if we're Christians, this love. And we don't have to be extraordinarily evil or get saved in the middle of the storm, because if you're not a Christian this morning, all you have to do is realize that you're going the wrong way and that Jesus is your only hope. And if you call out to him and you trust him in the way John Newton did, he will have compassion on you. So I just want to go back to the verses that we started with. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here's this man, Jesus. And you're going to be able to spend eternity sitting next to him and talking to him. Do you think you'll be bored? Do you think you'll ever run out of things to say? Do you think you'll ever be able to to even begin to plumb the depths of who he is? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't, he, there's all of history to talk about, but there's all of the world to come because I think God has got amazing things in store and all of world to come and, and the creation to come that we're going to be able to see his spectacular beauty and glory. Um, so uh, I want to just end up with a a picture of him. Now I said to start with I wanted to change your picture of him. And uh, let's just, uh, I'm just going to skip over that verse. Um, I want to take this from Psalm 110. You know, when often we picture God, or people draw pictures of God, they he's an old man, isn't he? No, he's got a beard, white hair, maybe going a bit bald, and wrinkles. And uh, and Jesus is often picture, maybe not quite as old, but kind of the same sort of picture of him. And uh, we're given an image in Psalm 110 of Jesus. And we know it's Jesus because it begins by talking about the Lord said to my Lord, and it's it's quite clearly Jesus. New Testament writers quote this as being Jesus. But it says, your people willingly follow you on the day of your power, on the mountains around Zion, at sunrise, yours is the dew of your youth. Here's a man in his prime. 
He's a young man in his prime. Have you ever wondered why the disciples didn't recognize Jesus when he was raised from the dead? Why Mary didn't recognize him? Why when he appeared on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him? Do you think the perfect new creation body had any signs of age on him? I don't think so. I don't, he was perfect. Like he was the perfect man. So his body would have been absolutely perfect. Not a sign of age. The dew of his youth. So when you picture Jesus, he's going to look very young because he's going to have no imperfections at all. He's going to look the perfect human being in all his strength and all his beauty. This is Jesus. So this is the picture I want you to replace you with. Okay, forget the wrinkles, forget the white hair, forget all of that stuff, forget any signs of age. He's young and he's strong. And when you see him, you will love him. When you see him, you'll be like him as well. That's a good thing as well. We will all be, we will all have that perfection of beauty about us. So I hope that this morning I've managed in some way to redefine your image of Jesus. And shortly we're going to be praying to him. And when we pray to him, we have an image of who he is. And we are going to uh, just just think about that as we pray to him. So let's just close our eyes, shall we? Jesus, we thank you that you are this being we've been talking about who is higher than the highest power, who knows the beginning from the end, who has the future in his hands, and yet you care about me. You care about my hopes and dreams. You you care about the things that have happened to me, good and bad. You love me so much. And my little problems are not too small for you. And I want to tell you, Jesus, I love you. I want to tell you that you are the the best, the best, the most wonderful person I could ever spend time with. And I look forward to spending time with you for eternity. Amen. Amen.